if you went into a clinical situation, even in the UK National Health Service, yeah. and you, you sat there with someone who was suffering from some terrible, terrible real-life human problem with all of its convolutions biologically and medical disease, psychological issues and social dysfunctioning, and you tell them they've got a trickster and a demon in their head, <laughs> you'll be the one who gets sectioned, not them. <laughs> but do not suggest that one exists because then you're in that superstitious and magical world. Next thing you know, bloody Dumbledore, or whatever his bloody name is, or, or any of these other idiots, characters from literature and fantasy have been interjected into your head, waving a magic wand round, which is really an axe, to chop your ego up into little tiny dissociated parts that are all functioning by themselves. And the justification for it is type theory. Alright, welcome back everybody to Young to Live By. Now in the last video we talked about how you could potentially identify a complex in yourself or in other people. And since then, Steve, one of your favourite things to do of course is to go on our Discord server and start explicating things further for of course the guys who are over there. I thought I'd start by reading out this post because it's quite an important one we reckon. So you said, hello everybody, in the latest video I mentioned the clinical observation that when someone is expressing a false type, in this instance one internalised via suggestion or influence from another, then the psyche, the unconscious thereof, will often attempt to break the hold of the identified, as in a complex, type, by pushing the so-called inferior function. If you can imagine someone with an identified mother complex that includes type hosting by the son's ego, then the inferior function in relation to the hosted type will often manifest to weaken the hold of the hosted type complex. This may or may not be the, be the same inferior function of the host's true type. It's always good to remember that no one has a fixed type. Variation most often occurs in attitude, i.e. in the case of an INTP, when the negative anima is operant it, being concealed, unconscious within the ego, may turn the INTP into a functional ENTJ, as modelled in MBTI terms, so that its controlled TI becomes weaponized, i.e. TE, so we've got a flip going on there. Weaponized as it will target someone via damage relating, in general or specifically, to target the relationship to a particular individual. Type is dynamic, and so keeping rigidly and fancifully to a type framework is about as useful less <laughs> as it is trying to reify archetypes or using neat and artificial constructs about archetypes, such as the popular king, warrior, magician, lover, which due to their internal consistency and suggestibility impress some people yet have no real world clinical use at all. The psyche will always, in caps, tell you what it is and what it wants if you approach it in the right way. I guess with, with that said, what comes to mind when you're talking about this? What sparked this off? Well, um, a, a number of people that we've been working with recently, plus um, the way that type is pushed on the internet broadly into, into a very neat uh, system of complementarity where you have, say, thinking contrasted with feeling. And I know Jung pushed this himself, but it's been elaborated upon. And we need to remember, too, that in psychological types, Jung spoke of pure types. So you might have a pure thinking type, a pure feeling type, that kind of thing. He did say that they were seldom encountered, but bear in mind that when he wrote psychological types, he hadn't fully explicated or developed his own theory, and that there were no type tests at that time. Later on in his career, he said that type tests, <coughs> such as they were at the time of his passing, were for beginners only, and that experienced clinicians didn't need, use, or want them. I think that's still the case. And that the elaborations that you get in some of the popular type tests, including the Myers-Briggs, are far too extensive and don't really map onto what you meet in the consulting room. And Pauline and I, for example, base this on 
now over 40 years of continuous clinical experience, what you actually see is not what is suggested through either the type tests or through some of the more recent elaborations. What I've described here in response to a particular person is what you really see. Uh, type hosting, for example, as, as we call it, is really influence and suggestion from a third party where you take on their type. In this particular case, I was referring to a mother complex, and that's the bridge with the last video that we did on the mother complex. Mm. So a son, for example, can actually internalise his mother's type because the attachment bond that was formed very early on wasn't resolved properly. Freud would talk about that in an Oedipal uh, sense. Mm -hmm. um, the Kleinians would go on about uh, object relations and then how they affect that person for the rest of their life. Uh, because we're grounded fundamentally in a Jungian framework, we're more interested in the relating aspects of life. This is the province of the anima and the animus and the anima as it forms in relation to the mother for both genders will affect um, how that person develops uh, subsequently. And if they take on the mother's type, which was, if you like, the obverse or the shadow of the Oedipal situation as Freud understood it, think of it in these terms, for example, that it's not just the attachment of the child to the mother, it's also the mother's attachment to the child and how that will persist. Uh, and that can result in, as I say, a son taking on the mother's personality type or expressed type due to identification and control. The psyche being homeostatic will attempt to resist that and that's the kind of thing that you will see when you get these very strange type presentations that are not accommodated for in normal Myers-Briggs terms or indeed in pretty much any other test that I'm aware of. Okay, so using this example then as an INTP, so you've got an ENTP mother or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So you're saying that potentially all the time the son could present as an ENTP or under, say, certain conditions like, say, the stress response system? Well, both. Um, and it'll be a question of degree because remember, that, um, if, if we think in terms of type, it's so containing, it tends to blur everything else out. And, and type only describes itself and if you focus on that you will miss just about everything that isn't type and that is everything else <laughs> there is to do with uh, a person's psychology type is superficial type refers to the conscious adaptation the ego there is no unconscious type you cannot type your unconscious by assuming that the reverse a savior myers-briggs is your unconscious that's nonsense it doesn't work like that at all Jung was very clear about this. These were attitudes and functions of consciousness. Very, very important to understand. And whilst you, you stick with type, you are still within your ego and the ego fictions, the fantasies of the ego. And they are expressed in this case that we're discussing now through type, as in the fiction about a type that you might believe in because you've been influenced by type theory. The facts of how people present completely different. You do get people who present as a pure type. Nothing else is, is for sure. It might be, for example, they're just extroverted. And what you're seeing is an attitude type, pure attitude type. The functions are not differentiated at all. Then you might get a thinking type. And that thinking type can be introverted or extroverted. You don't see pretty much anything else. Everything else is relatively undifferentiated. Thinking is obvious, but it moves between the attitudes. So you have a pure... Uh, cognitive style, if you like, type there. Um, so many real-world 
presentations are not taken into consideration by these tests and by a lot of these online entrepreneurs who push a version of the Myers-Briggs or whatever. Do not contain yourself according to type. Use it as a jumping off point. You must move away from it to understand the person. It will give you an indication, but it does not give you a true definition. Very important yeah. distinction. It's obviously one of the things that you guys teach the students at um, IPSA, because we're doing our hypnoanalysis first year at the moment. Okay. Obviously it goes back to um, Milton Erickson, where it's, mm. you, you deal with the psyche as it presents itself yeah. naturally forward. Yeah. But there is an interesting thing, because there obviously is some level of framework here in terms of things will present themselves. Yeah. So for example, you used INTP and ENTJ. Yeah. Not necessarily mm. that they exist as a functional thing that, that characterizes a person, but someone might present as an INTP within yes. the MBTI framework. Yes. But then you go on and you say, like, um, under certain conditions, you can have type destabilization. Yeah. And that also seems to fit within the MBTI framework. Mm. Where INTP to ENTJ, if you look at the four cognitive functions, you just swap the I and the E around, basically. Yeah. But then beneath that, we were talking earlier, and it's kind of like, I, I, I asked you the question, um, well, what's the next stage beyond that? And you were like, well, it, it, it doesn't matter. Stop looking for a framework with which to sort of put these things within. Just yeah. deal with things as they naturally arise. Yes. That kind of make if we're kind of on the money there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. Specifically with this, and keeping with an INTP framework, because we start from an INTP beginning, if you like. So someone who um, perhaps would answer habitually as an indication as an INTP will, under a certain kind of pressure, reverse the polarity of their dominant function. So the thinking, which is always there, and say that's the, the most obvious and therefore dominant uh, cognitive function that I have out of Young's four, will reverse its polarity from introverted to extroverted. And at that point, they, in effect, become an ENTJ, not an ENTP. Mm. Um, and that's important, again, because what you're finding is, in the real world, the limitations of and the restrictions of the model, if you impose that on the reality, you're not actually seeing what's there. But in effect, then, the INTP, when they go into this mode, say, where the anima takes over their dominant function, and it becomes weaponized, and then they use that to target someone, what is normally introverted becomes extroverted and focused on the target in a weaponized way. Mm. It's different though when you have um, an extrovert and you get that switch in attitude. Mm. Yeah, we were um, as well. I think you can come in on this, this Pauline, mm. about how type changes over the course of the day and type when you are tired. It's like, as um, we were talking about it again earlier, and I observed that, for example, when um, in the morning I'm very, very introverted, and then normally I get very tired. I usually burn myself out quite frequently for about 3 p.m., 4 p.m. onwards. I'll get very erratic just hyper energy, as if I disappear off and dissociate into my head. And that could be characterized, if you like, within a framework like this, of you, you fall back on your auxiliary function, which myself would be extroverted intuition, and that kind of makes sense. Have you noticed with your work on the more Ultradian stuff, um, this happening? I think it very definitely does, James. I mean, I've just kind of noted that we're actually <laughs> delivering this podcast at a point in time in the day when people naturally experience. That's true. Yeah, it's it is, exactly it, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is sort of uh, around sort of the three o'clock mark onwards, and very often people have breaks in work. For example, around three o'clock, they mm. all have a cup of tea or coffee. And um, yes, I think you're right to say that it, in, in terms of a person's hormonal profile, they, they do dip around that time. And um, obviously, biology has, has an impact on psychology. And 
for people who are naturally extroverted, outgoing, they will probably, if obviously if they're, they're aware of it, or maybe they'll just do it naturally anyway, they'll just adjust themselves accordingly, to having a period of time, no matter how short, um, where they just really try and recharge themselves. Mm. And so um, somebody who, who is maybe maybe say an extroverted feeling type like myself for example would fall back on introverted sensing to to manage that process mm. and um to obviously um to get my energy back and uh, to feel that I've I've had sufficient time on the inside to be able to go back out and, and and meet the demands of the outer world and the connection to to people and so on so it is it is useful to have an understanding of all these things, but and typology in particular. But it is really just a jumping off point mm. for mm. other things, and um, you really can't limit your practice and, and your observations and your no. assessments of people just purely to um, a, a particular MBTI profile. So, you, yeah, you do have to be careful. Mm and um, mm. you do have to be very flexible about things and everything has to be provisional really um, whatever presents you have to almost um, not be suspicious of but but you, you but you have to I think you have to take that as being like I say a jumping off point just just a, a provisional mm. uh, observation and now, understanding human nature is so much more than just yeah. assessing accurately somebody's type. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like I say, it includes bio... And if you said yourself, James, it includes a person's biology yeah, as well. Yeah, the basic rest activities. The basic, yes, the, yes, the BRAC, the BRAC yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then that will regulate people, won't it, and uh, yeah. what can surface and what can't, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. But we were talking, weren't we, about the anima, say, in this context... Uh, and how uh, for an INTP the negative anima will hide inside your dominant function and lots of people have, have raised this as an issue as if they don't understand how that can be. Uh, they seem to think that the ego, the ego is the centre of consciousness and therefore always conscious mm. and that's the impression you can get from a surface structure reading of Jung that that is what the ego is. Mm. However it's how you define the ego that's important. If you go back to Freud's model of the ego, the original psychic apparatus, which um, Jung himself based his model on, he did depart, but he based it upon that, a large part of the ego for Freud is unconscious. Now, how we reconcile that with Jung is, is understand that he meant that the personal unconscious is a field of relative unconsciousness as you drift away from the ego. So as things go further and further away from that bright focal, focal point at the centre, it becomes more and more unconscious until it is functionally completely unconscious. There's a lot of movement, it's dynamic there. But the ego itself, for, for uh, Jung in terms of emphasis, is an immediate bright light of awareness. Well, we know, and it's been known from... Uh, information processing and cognitive psychology, academic cognitive psychology, for many years, that the contents of consciousness are limited to the Miller number, which is seven plus or minus two chunks of information. That's all you can ever hold consciously at any one time. Everything else is unconscious. It may be relatively close to consciousness, but it's still unconscious if it's not contained within those packets of information that we can utilise at any one moment. 
So we have to think again about what Jung meant by ego consciousness and it being the bright light, the focal point of awareness. The negative anima is basically something which will hide inside your dominant function so it itself, it itself can function purposefully to damage your relationships. How does it do that? Well, it gets you to identify with it. What's the easiest way of achieving that? Well, think as if you were an intelligent virus. If you're inside a cell, the way to survive in that cell is to force that cell to replicate your DNA rather than its. So what it does, it has to overcome the defense mechanism, if you like, that would identify the pathogen and reject it. And it does that by taking over the dominant function of the ego, the habitually dominant function. In the case of an INTP, which we're talking about here, that's the thinking. Because it's not questioned. There's no defense against that which is identified with. And just as an aside, that's another drawback with typology. The more you identify with it and reify it, the more likely you are to create unconsciousness. Now there's something to think about. Have a good think about that. The more you identify with those four letters and play around with them, the more you're dividing your consciousness off uh, from the reality of yourself and the reality of others and creating huge areas where, a, a, a kind of playground if you like, where, where complexes can have a hell of a time and great fun with you because you're limiting your model of yourself to that structure. And that's precisely what something like the negative anima will want you to do. Mm. So it hides inside your dominant function because you don't doubt that. It's there. And in effect, de facto, it becomes unconscious. Now, in the case of an INTP with introverted thinking being dominant, most people don't see that. That's on the inside and it's introverted and it's withdrawn away from the object. But if the negative anima wants to wreck a relationship or even just damage it in the moment, mm. what it will do is reverse the polarity of the introverted thinking and will extrovert it, which is what I mean that in effect you become an ENTJ at that exact moment that it is controlling you. You will aggressively assert and extrovert your introverted thinking towards the object which has been put in the crosshairs, targeted and attacked. And it will come out really, really cold and really hard and with a lack of relation to that object because that's a feature of uncontrolled extroverted thinking and that's effectively what you're seeing. Well, you'll see a total lack of compassion at that point for anyone or anything. It will just be... Yeah complete and utter, you know, almost a annihilation of relationships because yes. it, can, it can be so forceful yeah. uh, and, like I say, so lacking in compassion that it will just, it'll just brutalise relationships yes. to a point where it destroys them. And the person who's controlled by it will not even notice no. because they're just thinking like they always do. Yeah. Mm. They haven't noticed that it's stopped being introverted and it's become extroverted. Yeah, so that's, um, that's what happens with an introvert you get an immediate switch but there is a dynamic behind it which is not obvious so what I'm asking people to do is to consider this you're looking at someone you're perceiving how they appear in terms of their behavior and there's a difference between introverts and extroverts when you get this reversal of polarity on attitude type that is to say introversion and extroversion so we've talked about INCPs let's have a, a model if you like of an ESFJ who goes wrong ESFJs are normally very, very good when it comes to relating to other people and to feeling positively about other people. Now, imagine then that their animus, their negative animus is inside, but latent, therefore unconscious, their dominant extroverted feeling. Well, how will that work? 
what it will do is it will turn the extroverted feeling into introverted feeling, but undifferentiated, unconscious, not habitually related to introverted feeling. So you get the worst of um, introverted feeling, which in effect is very self-referred. It's all about that person, their needs, their values, no one else matters. So what you get then is you get the reversal of the extroversion into introversion and it goes in, but it's slightly different. You'll see, I think James mentioned, actually he did, um, earlier on when we were discussing this, there's a, there's a pause, there's, there's, there's a break which is tangible, which you don't see with introverts, because it's as if there's a moment of unconsciousness becomes manifest mm. in the extrovert, and that's the switch is about to be thrown. Now, metaphorically, those of you who are into... Um, cosmology you think about how a supernova goes off what that does is a star is burns up all its energy and it can't maintain its uh, its mass relative to its volume so it compresses in on itself and then it bounces back and it comes out so when you see that glazed eye look or that that moment of pause that's just before the introvert sorry the extroverted feeling is about to introvert itself and then come out but when it comes out it's not extroverted this is the paradox it has all the features of introverted feeling but it's extroverted at you and it comes out in that selfish way which is the complete reversal of what you normally expect so, so that's how you know it's weaponized because that's how you know it's, it's weaponized it's still pushed out yeah. onto the object Exactly, and no, normally um, then, you see, with an ESFJ that gets tired and fatigued because they've burnt up all their energy helping other people, which they habitually do, what you see is they go into introverted sensing mode as a proper homeostatic regulation, and that's about conservation of energy, so they have to withdraw from the object, fall back on the auxiliary, and then they're getting back into their body, their own needs, and they're putting themselves into a proper state where they can readapt to being an ESFJ again, normal homeostasis. But when the negative animus is in there, it ignores the second uh, auxiliary function, mm. and it just reverses the polarity with all of its negative characteristics and fires it at you. But you do see that withdrawal, it's tangible. But with um, an introvert, you don't, because the switch occurs on the inside. And that's the difference. It's more sudden, apparently, but only because on the outside you don't get any warning. So, like with a supernova, you do get a warning. You do. You actually, the the, uh, the star, by metaphor, actually exhibits um, a moment where it's about to collapse and then it rebounds and explodes. You don't see that with the introvert. It's it's just instance. The shift is instant. It has happened. It's not visible because it's on the inside. And in both the cases that I've mentioned, this is to do with the relating function, and it's to do with the unconsciousness of the normal ego personality, of the fact that the negative anima or animus is hiding latently where it can do the most damage. Yeah. Well, it's, they, they tend, the, the anima or the animus step in, usually at the point, like you say, that homeostasis can't be achieved yes. in, in a natural way. Yes. And it may just, it could be positive or negative that actually, Steve, yes, as well, in terms yeah. of intention, mm. because we're talking a lot about it being weaponized. Yeah. But, but sometimes, for example, uh, if I was to try and model that myself with my, my particular... No, 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 I'm not taking it, I'm not taking yeah. it personally. Yeah. Um, but it might also um, be an attempt, well, like I said, where homeostasis stasis can't be achieved uh, in a natural way, then, you know, the, like you say, the, um, there is an attempt to regulate, but you kind of, uh, kind of overshoot the mark. 
in so much as if it was an extroverted feeling type suddenly um, flipping into uh, introverted feeling mode um, it might be that they have to it has to come out in that way almost because they've gone so far in the other direction of meeting everybody else's needs and not their own that it will just it will just you know the polarity will just shift yeah. and it will come out with that kind of um, conviction yeah. and that kind of force that I'm you know I'm going to kind of you know bugger everybody else basically I'm going to assert my needs but I'm going to do it in a very unpleasant way yeah that sense of conviction is yes, ca characteristic yes, of introverted it, it feeling is. at its worst it is. yes it is and yeah. that's not to judge introverted feeling no, types it's no. just the, the worst side it's of it. what happens when things go wrong yeah, isn't as, it? As yeah I've spoken about the worst side of introverted thinking of and course. how that disengages from warmth and uh, yes. in, in terms of attachment to the yes. object yeah yeah, absolutely. So, so will, will it always be weaponised then, or is it dependent on someone else being there or a particular relationship being there? Because we've spoken before that the negative relating function will inhabit the dominant function. Yeah. But this next step that seems to take place, this mm. depolarization of the dominant yeah. function, yeah. is that dependent on something, or is that always the natural workflow that the relating function will want to go towards? I think because of what Pauline said, yeah. which illustrates it nicely, it is dependent. But mm. I, I'm, I'm thinking of mm. clinical situations yes. because they illustrate dynamics well but of course this offers a counterpoint to that which is also important mm. but as I think most people are interested in solving problems then the clinical picture is probably the one that I would feel more comfortable with with discussing because it's clearer it's clearer in a, cl in a clinical uh, sense what's going on mm. Mm. okay but this is where a, a biopsychosocial approach helps doesn't oh, indeed, it yeah. because of, I don't think that sometimes the social side of it is emphasized enough or, or even the biology sometimes no. too mm. um, and, and I think there's the, you know having said that um, you know you create conditions whereby sometimes people can't um, rebalance themselves that they can't achieve the kind of homeostasis that they need because mm. they're being frustrated by other people in some way or certain situations maybe a work situation yeah. and, and things just pile on top of them mm. and uh, it, it's, it's almost impossible for them to um, to utilize their dominant function in a productive way yeah. anymore and then obviously they, they, they fall back on other things they so yeah. um, you, you can see how that frustration occurs or, or how why people flip in the way that they do oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah so it's again it's it's always the context isn't it it, it is always the context and going back to um, the preamble really when we were mm. introducing this particular example say of a, a mother being uh, so controlling over a son that a son adopts her yes. personality type and it's not real yes. or true for him yeah. one of the, the first uh, patterns of resistance you get and I'll give an example just to illustrate it um, if you imagine an INFP mother shaping her son's psychology according to her attachment needs to him mm -hmm. he may identify with the mother because of his vulnerability as a very young child to the extent that he draws in the uh, the psychological type of the mother and ego identifies with it. His own homeostasis then will access extroverted thinking, which is the the inferior function according to Myers Briggs with respect to um, introverted feeling dominant INFP. That he re he resists his mother through her dominant her inferior function, which is uh, an unusual thing to see. And then what you get sadly is that the mother will reject the son. 
while still trying to control him and he will split because he's used to being an INFP yeah. uh, and he just manifests extroverted thinking in a pathological way but it's really trying to help him but it just describes the neurosis to split yeah. him perfectly and he's left with that and wondering what the hell's going on yeah. and that's at a, a typological level of analysis but knows even then you have to bring so much more in mm. to understand it just at a superficial level mm. than type alone you need to know about the, the compensation from the unconscious the identification the attachment bonds yes. the fact that that's an so e the instinctive drive the instinctive yeah. drive yeah it's an oedipal situation from a freudian perspective but reversed it's the obverse of the norm mm. where the son wants to have a sexual relationship with the mother and dispose of the father that's a mythological way of containing that if you like whereas in in real life the mother is just as responsible in fact more so if she continues that attachment bond beyond a healthy point doesn't help the, the, the son to separate and to mature no. to attach to his father and then his peer group and then to an adult woman yeah. and we're seeing this over and over and over again more and more young men are being contained like this negatively by their mothers taking on their mother's personality type uh, trying to resist it uh, and then the mother just doubles down in this case it would be the, the INFP mother would double down on being an INFP at him and shaping him even more his uh, attempt to correct for that through extroversive thinking would ramp itself up but he couldn't sustain it yeah. and that's when you get neurotic well uh, it's a very unequal relationship it isn't is. it? It, it, is. it really is which is what allow the, allows these things to run on yeah. and, and, and yeah. ruin you yeah. know, a young person's development, essentially. It is. Because it's a, it's a power relationship. There's no way that a young child, a young baby mm. or a child, can, can do anything about that, really. No, not at all. And they, they are victim. They just, they're just prey to it. Absolutely. And yeah. I have a lot of it going on. Yeah. So the way to heal this is to get away from typology. The typology helps you to understand yeah. the facts of the relationship between, in this case, the mother and the son. And that's as far as you need to go with that because you need to get away from type if you try and use type then to heal correct for the son all you're doing is reinforcing the split and the reasons for why that would happen the, f the first one is that his identified mother complex is ego incorporate which is his mother's type will fight to continue its control but it's not the mother at this point that's doing the fighting of course it's the complex within the young man will resist not only you but himself getting well because that's the surface area if you like the surface structure that he is familiar with himself with being he is so attached so identified with his mother and his mother's type he can't separate from it to simply suggest an opposite won't work you have to get away from type and the way to do that is to get down into instinct yeah. instinct is a priori to anything else and it will direct him to find his own way out of that the yeah. healing route is into instincts each and every time the instinct to separate from the mother the instinct to be an individual and if need be if it's a lengthy form of therapy then uh, understanding the mother's instincts that might be necessary in some cases mm. where um, a more focused separation for example a forcible one if you like psychologically isn't a hundred percent appropriate because the attachment to the mother might be so strong he needs to understand why she did what she did to him yeah 
but instincts lead you into that problem and they also lead you out exactly in so much as that, that the, the attachment that you talk about is so strong and has to be strong yes for for, for children growing up yeah um the, the there's really no way out of it no except to like you say understand how the instincts are driving you yeah. uh, and, and how they may have influenced your mother as well yes. uh, and and then like i say use them as the way out they've been the way in but they can yeah. also be the way out absolutely so it's the mother's instinct for attachments and the compensations in her life um, for what may have gone wrong with respect to her own imprinting of relating from her parents or even her grandparents, then what happened in the relationship to the father of the child and then what needs weren't balanced there. Yeah. All of that's going on in the background. But we should never overemphasise that because we get away from the person who's working with us who has to be our primary focus. So though in the background there is that wider relationship. And as Pauline said earlier, a biopsychosocial model allows you to do that because you take everything into consideration. Mm. So all of that does need to be properly assessed. Mm. But typology is surface structure only. It's useful up to a point. Uh, much of it is habit. Uh, very few people actually fit neatly in the real world into Myers-Briggs uh, letters. There's usually a dominant attitude and there's usually a favoured function. So you could say about someone, well, generally they're extroverted or generally they're introverted. Mm. And then they might shift themselves slightly towards thinking or feeling by habit. The rest of it just basically shows what a mess someone is rather than how adapted they are. Yeah. And, and that's the important thing. And if you impose a grid, a rigid grid of complementary opposites onto someone, you're setting up a neurosis immediately. Typology itself is neurotic. You need to understand that. Do not impose it on people. It will contain the way that they think, the way that they feel, the way that they model themselves. It will get them away from instincts. And it will also reinforce superstitious behaviour as well in ways which we could go into. I know it will take some time, but when you understood it, you'd see that that was obvious. Just to return to uh, instincts for a moment, Steve, because mm. um, I, I guess what's implicit in what we're saying is that we shouldn't just limit things to typology. Mm. We should always be looking for the bigger picture and, yes. and, and what else might be going on psychologically or, or biologically even. And we were talking the other day about instincts. Mm. And um, I'm just thinking... Of course, because we've, we've been talking about sort of uh, mother-child, mother-son relationships in particular, um, that animals don't seem to have a problem at all where it comes to instincts and so much as when it's time, say, for, um, you know, uh, a mother bird to turf the, the, the chicks out of the nest, well, it happens. And, and wolf and tigers, and, and, and for example. Yes, yeah, absolutely, other animals, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, whereas maybe because we're with our offspring for so long um before they they, they kind of reach a, a stage developmentally where mm. they can kind of go out into the world and make it on their own obviously that confounds things considerably mm. um and it seems to be that in in a way that sort of um extended process of growing up generates these kinds of problems yeah. instinctively for people yes and yeah. yet obviously it, it's we're all animals and, and we are intended, once we are developmentally mature, to mm. leave the nest, me yeah. metaphorically yeah. speaking. So we're back to that, that idea of, of what goes wrong with instincts and, and maybe more specifically um, what goes wrong with a mother's instincts for that kind of uh, scenario yeah. to uh, take yeah. place. 
Yeah. So just so that might be something worth addressing. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. so, so it wouldn't be a case then, for, say, for example, <clears throat> you said obviously earlier that ESFJs broadly might be caring and interested in other people. Yeah. Mm. Say an ES, ESFJ mother misfired with her FE and that's what caused her to be overprotective. Yes. That's why I can see a typology-based argument being yes. but you're saying that's surface-level fluff. Yes. And we should deep, dig down deeper. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what you see, James, uh, as you say, and, and that would maybe describe... Um, how how you would observe uh, an ESFJ mother with a child, but it is really just it is just the icing on the cake. It yeah. really just is on the surface, and uh, and unless you get beyond that and you start to look at complexes, um, both in a, in a psychological and a biological mm. sense, and you won't really you won't get a complete picture of what's really going yeah, on. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because there are two aspects of typology that are really looked at. The typology of complexes and the typology of instincts because yes. um, with neuropsychoanalysis's approach to instincts you can see how type would match onto many of their basic instinctive and emotional systems mm. just as we can relate them to the animal or the animus for example to help people to understand where they come from in instinctive terms mm. so it's important probably to consider that too and that gets you away or should do away from typology you need to default to the instincts and then you understand type don't try and interpret instinct through type because you're still in your head you're still in your, that limited bandwidth of consciousness mm. it's a trap so understand instincts for what they are then you'll see how they drive through type that's different and then how instincts and the, the maladaptation of instincts generates complexes and those complexes can have their own type which is interesting in and of itself i think yeah, yeah. so we've seen that um it's possible for a son in the scenario that we introduced at the beginning to internalize by the process of introjection and identification a ego identified complex that originates in the mother's adapted type so you can say then that the, that lad's mother complex has his mother's type uh, in a functional sense and how it operates within him but it's also true of other complexes as well that they can take on aspects of type um, when people become adjusted or conditioned by a specific situation for example say uh, a young person entering the world of work for the first time and they bring forward their adapted type which uh, is how they interface with the world through their conscious mind into that environment it may not work they may not be able to carry it they may be getting buffered and shaped by influential people or situations and then they then adopt the type that either compensates for or complements that environment and that then because of the stress under which that they have learned to adjust their type in that situation form a split off complex and then, as I say, in effect, you have a complex that's related to a work situation that's been created by that, that has itself a specific type. And because it has a specific type, and it's not the habitual type, it's relatively unconscious, and it's difficult for ego consciousness to access it. So you can see then how complexes don't just split off, they can split off and have a type. And the type issue then becomes a problem, because the ego can't see it. So you have to help people to disidentify, even if they don't understand the theory, with the consequences of there being a different type between them and their, their complex. So that's one way it can work. 
I, I, I like this just to quickly come in because one of the most popular type theories on the internet based on MBTI you have things like demon functions oh, oh, yeah. and trickster functions oh, mm. oh dear please mm. no don't do that do, do not do that to yourself if you went into a clinical situation even in the UK National Health Service yeah. and you, you sat there with someone who was suffering from some terrible terrible real life human problem with all of its convolutions biologically a medical disease psychological issues and social dysfunctioning and you tell them they've got a trickster and a demon in their head <laughs> you'll be the one who gets sectioned not them and and that is serious you just do not do it and do not give yourself that also suggestion and that's typical of the superstitious nonsense i was talking about earlier about how typology can feed into primitive magical dissociated thinking don't do it do not use terms like that you're distorting the psyche the psyche will tell you what it is do not impose anything like that on it or you'll find and this is the truth there really is a trickster inside the unconscious it's part of the homeostatic function that self-regulates when something goes too far the psyche will act like a trickster in the way that it's portrayed in myth that's why we see it in myths but do not suggest that one exists because then you're in that superstitious and magical world. Next thing you know, bloody Dumbledore, or whatever his bloody name is, or, or any of these other idiots, characters from literature and fantasy have been interjected into your head, waving a magic wand round, which is really an axe, to chop your ego up into little tiny dissociated parts that are all functioning by themselves. And the justification for it is type theory, which within itself is internally consistent, and that's the seductive part of it, because that will seduce their therapist to act in that way and then process everybody through it. Do not do it, it is dangerous. Sorry about the rant. Cause, cause rant of the day. <laughs> well, maybe laugh is just an image of someone going in with like this big cross like Van Helsing yeah. or something, a, a proper um, exorcist type character. Could you imagine the type of therapist that could be produced if it was just the material of say rogue people on YouTube creating this network of things? I mean, you were saying like, like an axe to chop things up. It's going to give them a break. It's down, an axe really. to sort of chop the brain in half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It does show how dangerous the stuff can be. It's, it's incredibly in dangerous. The, the, the best way to work with other people is the same as the best way to work with yourself. Treat other people with respect. Treat your unconscious with respect. Guess what? Things happen, and they happen quickly and smoothly without resistance. Once you start creating problems by the imposition of, of, of ridiculous, superstitious, medieval-level thinking, then you, you, you're going to create ridiculous, superstitious, medieval levels of dysfunction in the people you're working with and yourself, and you will communicate that through the medium of suggestion, which is influence, reciprocal influence. So watch it, because when you start to bounce things off people, they bounce back. That's the problem with occultists. They get that all the time. They think they're immune to their own suggestion, and they're not. And that's why an awful lot of them end up in psychiatric units. Because they like to think that they're in some kind of control of these reified forces that they create, which are basically complexes. Yeah. Which Jung understood that. It's in his doctoral thesis right at the beginning. So those of you guys who follow Jung, start where he started and get that right first. Don't demonise these things because you're going to create that through suggestion in yourself and in other people. Mm. Part, part two of the rant. I'll stop. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. Yeah. But to come back to the serious point that you yeah. were making before you had your rant, or part two of your rant, yeah. um, about um, complexes taking on a, a particular type or yeah. particular psychological function. Well, we were actually working with somebody yesterday who was struggling really 
with a moral complex. Yes. And it, it was exhibiting extroverted feelings. Yes, it was. And it was also almost as if uh, this young man was trying to atone for the guilt that he felt yeah. by developing his extroverted feeling yeah. and, and almost being overly nice to everyone. Yes, that's and, a good point. And um, it would have just taken it de facto or taken his word for it that he'd done the MBTI and therefore he was definitely an INFJ. Yeah. We would have missed that. Yeah, we would. Uh, or we'd have just gone along with it and then mm. we would have been infected by his complex yeah. and it would have obviously the confirmation bias that's right you it would have worked bias for, for, your, for your pseudo MBTI theory you do much of this stuff is pseudo MBTI yes, it's not absolutely. even real MBTI and then you've got to watch you've got to watch your own narcissism and all of these things too because somebody presents and they're a similar type to you and you think oh this is great this person's the same type as me we're going yeah. to get along and before yeah. you know it you've been taken in yourself yes or the complex has taken you in and uh, yeah. is using your own intelligence back at you. Yeah, so you do you do have to be very very careful. And mm. I think the the only thing that we could have said with any certainty about him is that he probably had intuition. Yes. And and even the direction of the intuition was unclear. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Um. And 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 that was it. And and yet yeah. the the conversation started with him almost in a textbook way with him saying. I'm an INFJ, I'm yeah. presenting it, and uh, if we'd have run with that, I think we would have missed an awful oh, lot of everything. things. The, really. whole, the whole meaning of that person's life and predicament would have been <clears> lost. <throat> yeah, really good point, because that, that's, a, that's a recent case history, which illustrates it really well. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is that uh, those of you who may be training with us or on a really good course that looks at these things, will know that it's entirely possible to use hypnosis to create sub-personalities of a transient kind that have any attributes of the Myers-Briggs personality that you want, any of it. Um, you can access and remove them by using hypnosis, but are they real or are they through suggestion? And that's my point. You can create anything through suggestion, whether you use hypnosis to do it or you just use just some ordinary theory. All it takes is a vulnerable person. Could you do that to somebody who didn't understand type theory? Yeah, you could. And all you'd have to do is have the theory in mind yourself and that this is what I want to create in that person. Mm. And that could be subconscious, pre-conscious, unconscious within yourself. As a hypnotist or hypnotherapist, you can, you can do that because you, you're just creating confirmation bias in the subject that you're working with and then you create their theory through suggestion, your theory in them through suggestion. What about the physics function? The which function? The physics function. The physics Or the metaphysics function. These are, oh, these are so many right, important right, things we've not yeah. included in this conversation. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Okay, so we're getting back into superstition <laughs> and, yeah. I can't help myself today. <laughs> it's all right. Don't, don't worry. Um, the, the, the psyche, if you treat it with respect, will help you. It will tell you what it wants it, and invariably it's instinctive. And before you get to the instincts, you get to the emotions. The emotions lead to instincts. The instincts then will correct the emotions and then the cognitive, if you want to call it, level of the complex will fall away. And this is based on neurophysiology, uh, neuroscience generally, particularly affective or emotional neuroscience and the emerging paradigm of neuropsychoanalysis, which our own field of work is complementary to and which within <coughs> which the three of us actually are actively involved at the moment mm. within the neuropsychoanalytic world. Well, this is one of the things you were discussing with this gentleman yesterday, who, mm. who you know, we were just uh, elaborating on the, on the type theory, um, in so much as 
you're trying to get across to him that you what you think about what you do instinctively is literally an afterthought. Yes. Mm. It may only be, you know, uh, a split second. Yeah. But nonetheless, it happens in that order so that when people behave instinctively, it's, the, the instincts are just going to run and they're going to go off first, even if you believe cognitively that yeah. you've made a decision really about something point, yeah. that really you really haven't mm. and and i think or i hope that that was helpful for him um to to free himself from maybe he's obviously giving himself a hard time yeah uh, about what he'd done and what he'd been through and uh, to be able to accept that actually you know he couldn't have avoided that no because yeah. of the ordering effects of the way yeah. in which things actually happen, yeah. um, that that is a, an explanation really yeah. in and of itself, and, yeah. and that's got nothing to do with typology whatsoever. No, no, you're quite right. It, uh, um, typology is like the end point really of everything in that sense. This, if you make an observation based on type, you're seeing something that was formed well before it was ever a type, mm. and it happens within a person, and then it's filtered through that. But even then, it's limited. It's going to be limited to whatever is the attitude of consciousness, introverted or extroverted, and whichever of the so-called cognitive functions is operant at that time. So you're kind of mistaking the endpoint for the process if you focus on type. It's the wrong place to start. It really is. Thank you for watching this episode of Young to Live By. If you haven't already, make sure you download our free PDF for integrating your shadow. It includes the most advanced theory on the topic available anywhere on the internet, as well as a full practical breakdown. If you've ever wanted to integrate your shadow, this is honestly the way to do it. Thanks again for watching and take care.